Es un tremendo honor poder estar con ustedes en esta mañana. La verdad es que cuando traje mis notas las traje en español, así que tengo que predicar en español. So this is the problem. Uh, first of all, it's a, it's a courageous pastor who takes an unknown, uh, even if it's at the recommendation of Willie and Lydia Krupp. So I'm grateful for the privilege to be with you. Um, but when I, I pulled out my, my notes to speak, I, I realized that they were in Spanish. <clears throat> And they are in Spanish. Uh, uh, because I want to... To, to open my heart with you about some things that, that I have been speaking to the Latin American church for many years. And it didn't quite make it to the English language. So if the translation of the scripture is a little unusual, it's because I'm translating from here straight from Spanish to English. But I bring greetings to you from my local church in the United States. And... Uh, There's a remarkable kinship that God has birthed between the U.S. and South Africa. And I think it's because the hand of God is on South Africa. You've gone through uh, enormous, enormous political, social transitions. And God kept the nation together. And we pray that God will give you godly, competent men and women of integrity that will lead the nation and the church. This is a remarkable year in South Africa. You celebrated the Global Day of Prayer in May. Next week, the enormous Lausanne Congress will be held in Cape Town. And it was my privilege to be at the first one in 1974 as a very young man of 32, at the second one in Manila in 1989, and this third one in Cape Town at the tender age of 70. And then you gave the world the World Cup. And you bestowed on the orchestras of the world the, the Vuvuzela. <laughs> I have one. My friend Peter Tarantal brought me one. And last Sunday we celebrated the birthdays of my daughter Christine's two older boys. And the centerpiece was this unique instrument with the, with the flags of the world. And I taught all my grandchildren how to play it with great skill. <laughs> so grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. About 30 years ago, no, it actually starts about 70 years ago. In northern Nigeria, there was an, an, an ethnic group, not a large ethnic group, but a, a, an identifiable people group um, that it had no acceptance of the gospel. <clears throat> On two occasions, 
missionary teams from the West had gone uh, into this area. And on both occasions, they had been rejected. The name of the people group was the Guandara. Guandara. Say it with me. One, two, three. Guandara. The Guandara spoke Hausa. It's the trade language of northern Nigeria. Millions of Nigerians speak it. They were an animistic people group. That is, they worshipped the spirits. They lived in fear of the spirits. About 30 years ago, a third missionary team, of, I think it was two or three families, moved into the Guandara territory, requested permission of the elders of the community to, to live there, and they were given permission. They arrived with uh, their children and their, their, their chickens and their goats and seeds, and they planted gardens because they're bivocational missionaries. They, they lived off the garden, uh, the eggs of the chickens that they would either eat or sell, and, and the goat, the milk, or as the goats would reproduce, and God would bless that little micro-enterprise. That's how they would stay alive. They got to know the elders, and this, particularly the storytellers, the, the old women and the old men that, that had kept the oral history of the Guandara. And they found that in deep Hausa, their real name was not Guandara, but Guandarawa. Say it, Guandarawa. And so the, the missionaries said, what does the name Guandarawa mean? And they said, oh, um, it means... The people who prefer dance over religion. Right. The people who prefer dance over religion. The two previous missionary teams had been rejected. Their message had been rejected, even though they spoke Hausa. But the Guandara people wanted nothing to do with them. They left them defeat. In the language of the missionary world, they would have been cases of attrition. That they had to abandon the field because they were rejected. Actually, they were, they were pushed out. When this third team heard that the name of the Guantanawa meant the people that preferred dance over religion, they went back to one of the homes and they caucused and they discussed. And they said, this may be... The key that will open the heart of the Guandarawa people to the gospel of Jesus. Now, who were these missionaries? They weren't Germans or Swiss or Brits or Americans or Canadians or Kiwis or Aussies. They were Nigerians. Their mother tongue was Hausa. There were Nigerians that were sent by the Evangelical Church of West Africa which has a missionary society called the EMS, Evangelical Missionary Society, that today has over 1,600 Nigerian missionaries supported by the Nigerian church, penetrating Nigeria, the countries beyond, and some outposts in London and New York. So in their discussions... 
They said, let's be creative. Now, here's, here's a caveat. They, they had gone to a missionary training school for a year. They had studied cross-cultural communications. They had studied how do you tell the story of God to people who've never heard the story of the Christian God. They had studied how do we take the, the stories of our sacred book and narrate them in a way that is understandable from beginning to end. But they said if these are the people who in their customs prefer to dance than religion, then let's dance. So, they said, let's take the story from the beginning. And they started in Genesis. And it was like a, a what do you call a soap opera, a serial, what do you call it here? A soap opera, you know. So they had these, you know, they're writing the script every day. And so they have these shows in, in, the, in the open areas of the Guandara village. And they started to dance the creation. And they danced the story of this God who brought into being everything that is. That created the animals and the flowers and the air that we breathe and the water we drink. That created the animals that, that, and the apex of creation created the man and the woman. And out of that come the children. And then they had to dance the tragedy of the great rebellion of Genesis 3. And how that emerged in fratricide and in murder and in hatred and distrust and alienation between man and woman and, and all kinds of things because Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4 are pregnant chapters. It's, it's the deepest DNA soup of the Bible. And so they had quite a few episodes in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And then they danced through. The selection of Abraham is, is God's man and through that family all the nations of, of the earth would be blessed and they danced through the hymn books of, of, of the people of Israel. They danced to the end of the prophetic. I don't know what they did with the 400 years of silence between the New Testament. Maybe they just took a, a break. And, and then they danced into the gospel. That the, the Creator God had sent His own Son to come and live and eat and drink and sleep and be hungry and be thirsty and heal and touch and love and invest in the broken ones and have mercy and compassion in the sick. And then they danced the story of the passion of our Lord and His cruel death on the cross and they danced the burial and then they danced the resurrection and then they danced the post-resurrection appearances. And then they moved into the book of Acts and the Lord ascends. And what is phenomenal of this story, and it is as true as God is true, is as they danced the story of Acts 2 and the coming of the Holy Spirit on all of those people who had thronged Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit came and visited those people, 
back in Jerusalem, the breakthrough of the gospel amongst the Guandarawag came as they danced the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the first believers came into faith in Jesus Christ. And the church was birthed amongst the Guandarawa people. And they danced the rest of the story to the book of Revelation. Amen? Now, what's, what does the story tell us? Well, the story tells us that God is in the business of seeking men and women and young people and children who have no knowledge of the living God, who have no knowledge, true knowledge of our sacred book and the multiple stories that make up our book and the meta story, the epic narrative that puts this whole story together. And that God is in the business all the way since the birth of a church of sending His daughters and sons to cross geographic, linguistic, cultural, ethnic barriers to take the gospel and establish the church. And He uses the church as His primary seedbed for this massive global enterprise that we call the mission of God. Another thing that this story tells us from the Guantanamo, the Nigerian believers, is that we're living a new world of missions. I've been in missions now, well, I'm, I'm just about 70 in a few days, but I've been in missions for 70 years and nine months. Because my parents were missionaries. And so the nine months in my mother's womb counts. You know, it's got to count for a lot of things. So I was raised in this world. And now for five decades I've been in it. And it's been my privilege to live in Latin America for 30 of those years. And then the last 25 to be, in a sense, a, a global servant of Christ, developing a, a, a worldwide mission movement. And I'm proud to tell you that Willie Crew is one of my global colleagues and leads a network of, of pastors with a heart for missions around the world from the continents of Africa, Asia, Latin America, South Pacific, Middle East, Caribbean, North America, Europe. But the story also tells us that the missionaries that will have an impact as they cross these barriers to tell the story of God are those that have been called by the Spirit of God that come out of the seedbed of the local church that are confirmed as selected by the church that are equipped adequately for the task and that are properly sent and supported. And that's the case of this Nigerian mission society. There's another little thing here, and that is that God is using new ways of getting His message out there. The bivocational missionaries, the tent makers, the business's mission, the, the, the commitments to address issues of, of injustice and poverty and and endemic pandemics, uh, diseases like HIV, AIDS, or tuberculosis, and more people die in Africa 
of malaria than they do of HIV AIDS. But we've got these, these younger generations of children and now they're teenagers that are, that are motherless and that are fatherless. And maybe their grandparents are raising them. And, and what do we do with that? Well, that's part of the task that we have before us. But the other is that God blesses the arts. You know, I don't know if those Nigerian missionaries had gone to drama school. But, but I just think that, you know, there's some people they've got it and others don't. I mean, I, I married an, an artist. And she married a patron of the arts. I support her. Uh, Christine was the president of the drama club in high school. But it was our son David who became the artist. And later a pastor of arts, an artist at a church in Austin, Texas for eight years. How do we communicate through art, creativity, the story of God? What would it take if you commissioned a group of, of uh, your, your, your gifted artists? You'd have to select them. To say, give us a 12-week a soap opera of the story of God. We'll give you Seven minutes for each segment. You could do it. But the fact is that what's happening today is that God is doing something that's just phenomenal in human history. Let me go over here again, and I'll end up over there again. Let's take the global north and the global south. And the global north would be Europe, North America, and culturally Australia, New Zealand, and maybe parts of South Africa. Global south will be Africa, Asia, Latin America, most of the South Pacific, the Middle East, Caribbean. Global north, global south. We're at the year 1800, and we will end over there at the year 2010. It's estimated that in the year 1800, 99% of the Christians of the world were in the global north, North America, Europe. 1% in the global south. Now, we'll travel 50 years. No, no, no. We'll travel 100 years. 1900. And it's 91. I was never good at math, so you have to help me. 91 will leave 9. We go to 1950, and the percentage is 68 and 32. 1985, it's 50-50. The year 2010 <laughs> is 25-75. Now, what does this mean? It means that God has moved south. You know, that's, that's, that's brilliant. That's just, I can't believe how, how, how intelligent that word is. And you can't get much further south than South Africa. And you guys are part of this remarkable global work of God. It is said that if you were to portray the typical Christian in the world, if you boiled all the Christians to one person, this person would be a teenaged 
African girl, black African. Where does this all get started? Where does this mission deal come from? Is this a program that that this guy is, you know, moi is hoisting on us today? No, it just it comes out of the heart of God. The, the, the Word of God was not written for people who li- live times of peace, prosperity, influence, and prosperity. The Bible is written out of and to a context of people who live poverty, injustice, oppression, violence, exile, persecution. If you take the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, 65, 65 of them are written out of or to contexts of uncertainty, of brokenness, of exile, of violence, of injustice. There's only one book in the Bible that is not written out of and into that context, and that book is the Song of Solomon. But just think of it. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were written to a people on exile who had come out of 400 years of oppression. They were a nomadic people led by this wild, crazy Moses with his wild, mystical brother and then that sister. This Kabbal, this family that's leading the people of God. And it, these things of families, they just keep happening, don't they? You take the historical books and it's just tragedy on tragedy. The prophetic literature is the same thing. So many of the Psalms are written out of context of desperation or into that. And when Jesus the incarnate Son of God comes onto planet Earth as in the days of Moses, Pharaoh in fear massacred the infants. So Herod in fear massacres the infants in the areas of Bethlehem and around. And the church is born in oppression and injustice. So if we ever think that we can only do missions or we can only grow in terms of the global church if we have the money to do it, that is unbiblical. Because the whole pattern is that it comes out of a generous people who in the context of not having, give. And not only their finances, but their expertise and their flesh and blood. Too many people think that the biblical basis of missions is rooted in the great commissions of our Lord. The ends of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the beginning of the book of Acts. But when you, when you pull back and you say, okay, here's the Word of God, and we, we pull back and look at it, we realize that from the very beginning, from pre-Genesis to post-Revelation, we have a God who's on mission. The Trinity is a sending community. 
It's the arch community. It's the archetypal community. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit sends the Son. The, the, they're all sending each other. They're, they're just dancing in this movement of sending through, through creation. And we are sent by the Father. We are sent by the Son. And we are sent by the Spirit because they send each other. And as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, I, it's the same way I'm going to send you. So if we look at Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, this dense DNA soup of the beginnings of everything, you see there the, 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 the revelation of, of a cosmos, of a creation that, that was brought into being by a creator. And very soon on, we find that the Creator reveals His character, that He is a relational God. And just that fact alone, a relational God, makes the Christian God radically different from every other religious system in the world. He is a God of compassion. He is a God of justice. He reveals His commands, the, the code of, of human existence, of of, of right and healthy living. And, and the commands are good. But if you break them, you will pay the price. Just like every parent teaches their child not to fiddle with the electric plugs because bad stuff happens. And when the children are little, we put these little plastic covers. And our kids are always creative with us to figure out how to pop those little covers off. And some of them have the fun of sticking a wire in there. See what happens? And we keep our sharp kitchen knives, hopefully, where they can't see them or can't get them. These are the good commandments of the father and the mother because we want to save our children. And it's the same with the commandments of God, that they're good. They bring life. But if you disobey them, you pay a price. When I was growing up as a kid in Latin America, we had a dual level of, of courts. There was a, a, a court of uh, lower infractions, and that was my mother. And there was a supreme justice, and that was my father. And it was very important for little Billy, who was active, to keep offenses at the level of the lower courts. Because when my mother would say, okay, Billy, your father will deal with it. No, 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 no. And I'm trying to appeal the case down. No, Mom, please. Please, Mom, please. No, your dad. But I knew that at the core, my family's supreme judge loved me. What else do we find in Genesis 1, 2, and 4? That God creates a community. He selects people. He selects nomads. And out of them builds a nation. And we'll see this in certain passages in a few minutes. And then that nation becomes Israel. They are the people of God. The chosen people of God. And then later... Jesus, through the power of the Spirit and the love of the Father, will create the new community, the church. And God, in the very beginning, creates community. Because it's out of community that life takes place. And if there's something that I discern this morning in my spirit, 
here as you, the people of God, have chosen life, is that the breath, the fresh breath of the Holy Spirit is breathing on you as a church. I feel it. And it's not just I feel it like I feel it. It's like I discern it. My God. That God is at work in this church. And in its leadership. And in its vision. And in its dreams. And I trust that as the DNA of the people of God is found in the book of Genesis, that in the DNA of choosing life, you have also chosen that sacrificial and sacramental commitment to sending of your sons and daughters and to the areas of your own enormous, magnificent, yet wounded nation to take the love of Jesus and that you will also select some and equip some and send and support them to cross those barriers far away. So in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, the cosmos, the Creator, His commandments, His community. In Genesis 12, and now we'll take a look at some passages. In Genesis 12, you have the calling of the nomad Abram. He's called out of Ur. He will travel a long ways with his extended family and all of his animals. He's a wealthy businessman, farmer, and he will settle in a land that he's never seen before. And so in Genesis 11, the end of chapter 11, Genesis 12, and now forgive me, but I'm translating from Spanish to English. And the Lord said to Abraham, it's actually quite close to the English, leave your land. Leave from being part of your extended family and the house of your father. Leave to a land that I will reveal to you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name to be well known. And you will be blessing. I will bless those who bless you and if anyone curses you, I will curse that one. And in you will be blessed all the families of the earth. Blessed to be a blessing. And then that last verse, 4, is the verse of obedience. And Abraham did everything that God said to do. Abraham was a good man. Now, Abraham made some mega mistakes. We won't go into those right now. But at the core, he was a faithful man. The promises for Abraham, and they are appropriated by Israel, they are appropriated by the church, and they are appropriated by us as the people of God who have been blessed to be a blessing. There's a very peculiar passage that has intrigued me, and it's, it's in 1 Kings chapter Eight. And it takes place when Solomon is dedicating the temple. And as I was rereading this passage earlier this year, I realized that there's a whole series of, of ifs that, that, that the young King Solomon, the brilliant, wise King Solomon, 
uh, he's, but he's rather cheeky. <laughs> Is cheeky a word here? He's rather bold. Because he presents to, to, to Yahweh a whole series of hypothetical cases. If when such and such happens, will you please do this? You know, so many times my prayer is, uh, you know, God, I, I know you can do it if you want to. You know, if you really try, you can do this. You know, All right. uh, Solomon, you know, he's, he's, he's right there. And in the middle of this 1 Kings 8, 41 to 43, you find this extraordinary petition of Solomon as he's dedicating this magnificent temple. And he knows what's going to happen. But there's a sense in which this young king discerned the heart of God. And so he says, and again, I'm translating from Spanish. Also, this is the series of cases that he brings to Jehovah. Also, when the stranger or the foreigner, who is not of your people Israel, when that person will come from a distant land because of your name, because they will hear of your great name, of your strong arm, and of your extended hand. And when they come to pray in this house, will you please listen from the heavens, the place of your dwelling place, and will you do according to the prayer of the foreigner. Whatever the foreigner asks, will you answer? And then get this. Why does Solomon make this extraordinary prayer? So that all the peoples of the earth will know your name. So that they will fear you as your people fear you or reverence you, and that they may know that your name is invoked on this house which I have constructed. Time does not allow us to, to get into this passage, but maybe you can preach it in a couple of weeks from now. Because it's just fantastic. Solomon knows that the temple is a tourist attraction. You know, how many millions of people came to the World Cup? How many of them worshipped on Sundays? Well, even back in America, we had some trouble on the scheduling of the games. And attendance in church was a bit spotty on a few Sundays because there were other events happening over here. But you're our tourist nation. I find it hard to think of a nation in the world that has the, a greater variety of peoples of geography, of topography, of, of ecologies, from deserts to mountains, and, and, and animals. And, and I'm glad to know you've got a PhD in giraffe watching. That's a very thoughtful idea. <laughs> but Solomon knew that they would come as tourists, that they would come as businessmen, they would come as military. Some of them would come as spies to see how to destroy it. They would come as diplomats. They would come as refugees. They would come as immigrants. And they would come to the temple, they would be overwhelmed, they would realize this is a building dedicated to worship. Well, let me do my little worship thing. 
And there will be a place for the Gentiles to worship. But Solomon's saying, when that person comes, oh God, would you please listen to the prayer? What would the prayers be? If there is a God, reveal yourself to me. If, if this God that the Israelites worship is a God of compassion and of tenderness and mercy, look with compassion on my sterile wife. If there is something after death and these Israelites in this magnificent temple have some inkling of what's after death, then whatever they know, may I know. You see, embedded then in the heart of Solomon's prayer and that structure was this vision that the nations would know God. We get over to Psalm 67, and it's just one of many psalms. I do not have time to read it, but it's an echo of the, of, of the Aaronic blessing. And it's an echo of the Abrahamic blessing. Psalm 67, no, I think I need to read it. Because in this psalm, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us that Your ways may be known on earth, Your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise You, O God. May all the peoples praise You. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for You rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise You, O God. May all the peoples praise You. And then the land will yield its harvest. And God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us. And all the ends of the earth will fear Him. Embedded into the Psalms, the hymn book of Israel, was a sense that God has blessed us to be a blessing. And so we would go through the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, we come into the Gospels. And I, I have been deeply moved by, the, by what I think is the great commissioning of our Lord Jesus Christ. The commission that launched His ministry in Luke chapter 4, because it's in Luke 4 that you find Him standing up in the temple in a sense for the first time. And He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on Me because He has anointed Me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's the commission that launched Jesus' ministry. And so when the apostles record our Lord's final commissions, it's in the context of Luke 4. And it's a commission of compassion. It's a commission that embraces all the mercy ministries of the people of God. It's a ministry of compassion that says the people of God have a right to address issues of injustice in society because Jesus did it. John did it. And they both paid a price for they were both executed. And then you have the Great Commissions at the end of the Gospels in the book of Acts. And the heart of the Great Commission of Matthew is not going. It's not proclamation. It's not evangelization. It's the making of disciples. Because we don't... I've been in large churches around the world, but, but frankly, they're, they're fat. Fat. Big, fat churches. They're obese Tens of thousands of people. 
thirties, forty thousands of people, but they're not disciples. And the heart of the Great Commission is transformational disciple being made into the character of Jesus. And so we wind up. What is this crazy guy saying? As the believers of Nigeria understood God's heart for the nations and created a structure that would recruit, equip, send, and support long-term, mid-term, cross-cultural workers. So that's my prayer for you as a church. A deep commitment. And I think there are maybe seven different roles that I would identify for any local church to be marked as a church with a heart, not only for the people of Pretoria, of South Africa, but for the people of the world. And I would say it starts, one, by those men and women who are called to be informed intercessors. I'm going to give you seven options. And I want you to tick the one or the two that, that the Spirit of God may say, hmm, I think that's for me. Number one, a cadre of informed intercessors. Secondly, those who will mobilize, motivate, inform the church, the mobilizers. Third, the generous investors, those who will give. Now, now I, I've met some pastors who are a bit afraid of missions in the local church because it's going to cut into their budget. But my witness, my testimony, the 50 years of watching this thing, is that the churches that are the most mission-minded don't, don't have problems with money. Why? Because God's, God's the one who's got control of the purse strings. And, and if a church you're committed to blessing beyond your boundaries, then God will bless. It's not the theology of prosperity. Not a name it and claim it heresy. A fourth role. The shepherds. The pastors. Whose heart is fully and authentically mission-minded. And my heart says that you have that. And my heart says that God wants to birth something new. Fifth, a team of men and women that represent the demographic of the church from young people to the elderly that will say, we'll provide the leadership for this. And then there are two other roles, and maybe these can be franchised or can be subcontracted out, the trainers. Most of the training for cross-cultural mission can be done by the local church, but not all of it. I find it inconceivable, but yet it happens that there are people that are being sent to the Islamic or the Hindu or the Buddhist world, and, and their missionaries have no training in Islamics. No training in Hinduism or Buddhism. Or that they're going into areas of, of rank, open animism and there's no understanding or, or equipping of what it means to minister and serve and build a church in those contexts. 
So there are other trainings that have to be done and sort of subcontracted out. And then the seventh, finally, the sending structures. The church is a sending structure, but sometimes the church can subcontract some of these components. Seven roles. Now, my sisters and brothers, we go back to the Guandara, to those missionaries that came and saw the gospel established. Just a few weeks ago, I wrote a young Nigerian mission leader by the name of Stephen Baba, whose father, Panya Baba, told me of this story 22 years ago. And I said, Stephen, give me an update on the Guandarawa people. He said, Bill, the church is flourishing. The Guandarawa are sending their own missionaries. And we have now field supervisors who are from the Guandarawa churches. You see? It's, it, it's, it's a people group that was unreached, that was reached, and the established church itself became a mission-minded church. And so may the sovereign God, Father, Holy Spirit, come upon you and be upon you in ever-increasing ways that you would be light and salt in this city, in this area of this magnificent nation, and in this nation, and across the continent of Africa, and around the world. And so, I end up with another final piece of imagination. I'm in heaven now, and, and I think I hear a conversation between God and Abraham. And, and, and they're sort of looking out over history, and over the globe, and, and, and the Father sort of gives Abraham a nudge in the ribs and says, Hey, uh, hey old man. You, you, you remember that promise that I gave you in Genesis 12? And, and, and Abraham says, yes, sir, I, I certainly do. It was a rather long time ago, but I remembered it as if it were yesterday. Uh, yes. And then the father says, you see the Guandara? The Guandara wine. And Abraham says, yeah. And the father says, Abraham, that's part of Genesis 2. And Abraham says, you know, I never thought about that. But you're right. You're right. All the nations will be blessed. And then, and, then, and then the father says, uh, uh, Abraham, uh, let's sort of beam in on Pretoria. And, and there's a church that, uh, that's chosen life. <laughs> Abraham, those people that are gathered on this Sunday morning are part of of Genesis 12. And Abraham says, well, I haven't thought of that one, but you're right. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be His kingdom now and forever and to the ages to come. Great Father, Son, Spirit, bless this church its leadership, its worshipers, its worship leaders, its teams of service, its men and women and young people and children who have a heart for the living God and want to be transformed disciples in the vibrant nation of South Africa. In the name of the triune God. Amen. Amen.